Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. I know there are places where if you talk to a plant, they think you are crazy, but in our way, it's just good manners. What would the world look like if a developer poised to convert a meadow into a shopping mall had to ask the permission first of the goldenrod and the meadow larks and had to abide by the answer? It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. Two young girls growing up. Each falls in love with plants and nature. One becomes a specialist in traditional indigenous botanical knowledge. One becomes a scientist. One grew up in the woods and fields. She was that geeky little kid who always wanted to play outside. She didn't choose the plants, she says. They chose her. She believed she was born to be a botanist. The other girl grew up in the city. Her parents thought nature was dirty. You didn't touch nature, and you kept it outside. But, of course, she didn't. She started a journal tracking the growth of her bean plant and created her first data set at age nine. She believes she was born to be a scientist. Today, traditional knowledge is converging with Western science. The offspring of these different ways of knowing is producing far greater knowledge, perhaps wisdom, too. In this program, Potawatomi indigenous ecologist Robin Kimmerer and evolutionary ecologist Monica Gagliano merge traditional ecological knowledge with Western science for a surprising trip into nature's intelligence, interviewing the vegetable mind. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. The idea was to just um, provide the plants with an experience which is never found in nature, so that it couldn't be an, a genetic adaptation, and see what would happen. Do plants have intelligence? Monica Gagliano set out to address that question using the Western scientific method. After studying animal behavior as an animal ecologist, she turned to plant behavior. Italian by birth, She's currently a research associate professor and research fellow of the Australian Research Council at the University of Western Australia. So as a scientist, how do you test for intelligence? What is intelligence? And how do you learn the languages of nature? Monica Gagliano began by studying the plant Mimosa pudica. The beauty of the Mimosa pudica, which is also known as the sensitive plant, is that, of course, it folds its leaves when it's disturbed. And that can be directly by touching it, but also like by uh, strong vibration in the environment, big disturbances usually. And so I dropped it. <laughs> I created this little, sort of like a little elevator, and then I literally 
create a uh, control drops. And of course, plants don't get just dropped out of the air onto the ground. So they never experienced that in terms of genetics. Western science hasn't accepted the idea of plant intelligence. Could plants be as intelligent as people or animals? How creative could the scientists be to allow the plants to show themselves for what they are? Monica Gagliano created two groups that would both experience consecutive drops, but one group was maintained in an environment that had plenty of light, in other words, plenty of food. Well, in another group, they experience the same kind of drops, but their environment is actually very poor on light. And the thing is, when this plant closes its leaves because it's trying to protect itself for, say, potential predation or attack, uh, by closing the leaves, it, it loses opportunity for food, which is light. So almost like 40% of photosynthesis get cut off when they close the leaves. So there is a trade-off between, is it worth for me to close because it's really dangerous here? Or maybe I, I should just like, uh, you know, not bother. And of course, if you have a lot of light, you're sort of a little bit more chilled out and relaxed about it because you can afford to make a mistake and, oh, it's all right. But if the light is limited, then you really need to be a bit more sharp on what kind of decision you make. We see these across the board for all animals, including humans, of course. Plants in both groups were dropped 60 consecutive times, given a break, and then dropped again. Would the plants learn that the drops were not actually life-threatening and therefore keep their leaves open to capture maximum light? And would the amount of light they were receiving make a difference? The one from the low-light environment, after three drops, they still had 60, well, 58 or something to go, and they were already reopening their leaves like, this is boring, I know exactly what's going on, and I'm not going to bother because my light is limited. If I close for nothing, I'm going to lose out. While what I call my lazy plants, which are the ones with lots of light, they would take a lot longer to learn. Within same, the same 60, but it would take a bit more time for them to... All right, yeah, I guess I can just not bother closing here because, you know, it is actually a false alarm. The plants were acquiring new skills. They were learning. But would it stick? Gagliano pursued her next question with bulletproof laboratory rigor, using the Western scientific paradigm to challenge the same paradigm. How long would a plant remember this? Three days? So I went back three days later, and it was like, oh, boring, we know exactly what you're doing. So then I thought, okay, uh, maybe six days? And it was totally like trial, because I have no idea. Six days, and they were like, yeah, mm -hmm, try again. And like, there was just no change in their responses, and I knew it wasn't because there are the tests that you can do to check that it's not just, the plant is just exhausted. <laughs> So then I thought, right, fine, it's just you and me. So I split the groups even further, and half of the group that was in the highlight suddenly went to the low light, and vice versa. And after a month, 28 days to be precise, the plants still remembered, and all of them fitted exactly what you would expect of an animal or a human to do. I'm in awe of your creativity and not surprised a bit that the plants should be so smart. Indigenous botanist Robin Kimmerer and Monica Gagliano spoke with us 
at a Bioneers conference. And I love the way that you just described the way that you do experiments as a way of learning from the plant. And so oftentimes I feel like science is about learning about something, not from it. And, you know, I'm not so much of an experimentalist, but a field biologist, but that's just how I approach it as well, that, you know, I don't speak the same language of the plants, but I want to interview them. Mm. And so I interview them with field experiments Mm. and with certain kinds of observations so that they can tell me about their reality. So I really honor that way of thinking and, and letting the plants tell us. Speak. <laughs> letting the plants speak. Robin Kimmerer is an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. She's a plant ecologist, writer, and professor at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Her book, Gathering Moss, was awarded the John Burroughs Medal for Outstanding Nature Writing. And I focus on the mosses in particular because they are the most ancient plants on Earth. And one of the fascinating things about them is that they haven't changed. When we look at mosses in the fossil record 350 million years ago, they are so like the mosses that exist today. And to me, that means they're doing something right. You think of all of the plant groups that have become extinct. That is the norm, really, right? You evolve, you go extinct, but not the mosses. So they have some kind of formula that I think we as as human civilizations, looking for sustainability, for endurance, for persistence, we should be looking at organisms like mosses that have figured it out. To Robin Kimmerer, plants are gifts. They give us our food, medicines, fiber, clothing, shelter, and our water and soil. But for her, they're also our teachers by how they live. One of the most amazing things about mosses is that they're what are called poikilohydric. That means that they can go without water, without dying. They can go without water, without dying for a decade. They're just waiting for water. And as soon as that little drop of water, it could be something as small as dew, touches that leaf, the plant will come back to life. So it's living within its means. If it, it's not engineering the environment or changing the environment, it's harnessing its own physical forces to withstand environmental stress and opportunistically take advantage of whatever resources there are. It could be water, it could be light. There are these mosses that live in the backs of caves, and the only time they get any direct light is at that moment when the sun hangs on the horizon and that little bit of light goes into the cave, illuminates this beautifully faceted chloroplast. That's it. Two or three (laughs) minutes and they persist. And you know what the beautiful thing about that particular moss is? It's called goblin's gold. When it gets that little bit of light at the end of the day, it glitters. It's so beautiful. Um, So they're minimalists. They live within their means. Mosses are also all about sharing. You know, if you have that little tiny drop of water, it's going to be shared. It's going to be shared among all those plants. Because unlike the rooted plants who live as individuals, there is no such thing as one moss. Everybody flourishes or nobody flourishes. They all live leaf to leaf to leaf, and there's so much capillary space that if that little bit of water comes, it's shared across that whole photosynthetic surface. So they've got a lot to teach us. (laughs) Robin Kimmerer with Lessons for Us from the Vegetable Mind. 
Everybody flourishes or nobody flourishes. Minimalists that take only what they need. So how do we begin to understand nature's languages? As a scientist, Monica Gagliano has been asking if plant-to-plant communication takes place beyond the well-documented touch, light, and chemical interactions they carry out. What happens if there is no opportunity for communication through light, there is no opportunity for communication through chemicals, and there is no touch, there is no contact? And uh, would they still know who is growing right there next to them? In two experiments, Gagliano placed chili pepper seeds near but in no way connected to unfriendly fennel plants and other chili pepper seeds near but in no way connected to friendly basil plants. Gardeners have long observed that basil and chilies are companion plants that enhance each other's growth, but fennel and chilies are antagonists. But just how subtle is their awareness of each other? Would the chili seeds germinate at different rates when in proximity to, but isolated from, fennel or basil plants? What happened with both experiments, the chili seeds and seedlings as they grow, they can tell, they know who is growing next to them. They can tell whether the one locked up with no contact, no chemical connection, no light possibility, light messages coming out, they still know who it's in there, and they'll adjust their growth accordingly. And they do that both with the the case is that it's a fennel plant, like so a bad guy, (laughs) or whether the one is a good guy, like the basil. And in one of the experiments, what I did, I then took all the the little baby chilies out of the boxes that I created to block out all these signals and let them just grow as they, nothing happened. And they all, the growth trajectory changed so that they all reunited into one growth trajectory, which suggested to me that the differences in growth that I was observing was actually determined by the fact that they knew was next to them. So how do they know what is next to them? if not by physical contact, light, or chemical interactions. Monica Gagliano returned to the lab. That story and more from Robin Kimmerer when we return. This is Nature's Intelligence, interviewing the vegetable mind. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. explore all available Bioneers radio shows and video programming, please visit Bioneers.org. And our thanks for the generous support from listeners like you. Monica Gagliano had demonstrated that chili seeds are somehow aware of basil or fennel plants placed nearby, but completely isolated physically from them. How? Traditional cultures believe that every organism has a song. Back in the lab, the scientists decided to test for sound. Using lasers, a non-contact technology, she tried to listen to corn seedlings grow. What did she hear? They emit vibration in the case of corns at that 
early stages is around 200 hertz, which is within the audio, so it was within the human hearing. Of course, it will be a very low amplitude, so a very quiet sound, and it will be embedded in the soil. So again, using my animal background, what we do with animals when we do like work with sound, we do playback experiments. So we play back literally specific frequencies or specific calls, if, depending on the animals. So we did the same with the plant, right? <laughs> and, um, and of course the problem was like, okay, if it's a bird, it might flies away or it ruffles up its feathers, does something. But what is the behavior that we are looking for in a plant? And this is a seedling, it just got a root. And well, the root showed itself and the root started bending towards the sound source. Uh, within like six hours. So it's not like, uh, oh, you have to wait forever. But it doesn't do it to all frequencies. It's very selective and it's only happening for the 200, 300 hertz mark. Which is interesting because it's sort of the same range where the root is emitting its own sound. So what it means, I don't know yet, but it's definitely happening. Monica Gagliano's rigorous research, which was reported by Michael Pollan in The New Yorker, in a sense provides evidence for the traditional knowledge that every organism has a song. Part of the power of the Western scientific method is that by isolating single variables under controlled conditions, it can give us very specific information that we consider to be objective. But one limitation of Western science is that it removes values from the investigation. Traditional ecological knowledge does not make this separation. Potawatomi ecologist Robin Kimmerer points out that these two ways of knowing can coexist, and together they present a fuller picture. And given the degraded state of the world, what we really need today is not more measurements, but a revolution in values. What are those values? Robin Kimmerer spoke at a Bioneers conference. And if I could choose just a single element of the traditional teachings that we're called to pick up, it would be the teachings of the honorable harvest, which were taught us by the plants, who give us everything that we need. And we are destined by our biology to take lives in order to sustain our own, aren't we? And that utter dependence upon the lives of others sets up certain responsibilities, which are simultaneously practical and spiritual. This is known as the honorable harvest. They are rules of sorts for our taking. It's a covenant of reciprocity between humans and the living world, a very sophisticated ethical protocol. And it begins, one of the first steps of the honorable harvest is to understand that the lives that we are taking are the lives of generous beings, of sovereign beings. And in order to accept their gift, we owe them at least our attention. To care for them, we must know what they need. And at the very minimum, we should know their names. It's a sign of respect and connection to learn the name of someone else, a sign of disrespect to ignore it. And yet, the average American can name over 100 corporate logos and 10 plants. Is it a surprise that we have accepted a political system that grants personhood to corporations and no status at all for wild rice and redwoods? Learning the names of plants and animals is a powerful act of support for them. When we learn their names and their gifts, it opens the door to reciprocity. 
And these guidelines of the honorable harvest were taught to me by generous teachers as I was learning to pick medicines and berries. But it also applies to every single exchange between people and the earth, from catching a fish to fossil fuel extraction. And the protocols for the honorable harvest are not really written down, but if they were, it would look something like this. When you get to the woods, you don't just start grabbing everything in sight. We're taught never to take the first plant that you see, and that means you'll never take the last. This is a prescription with inherent conservation value. And then if we encounter another plant, we ask permission. I've always been taught to address that plant, to introduce myself and tell it what it is that I have come for. If, you have to, if you're going to take a life, you have to be personally accountable for it. I know there are places where if you talk to a plant, they think you are crazy. But in our way, it's just good manners. It's a two-way conversation, though. If you're going to ask, you have to listen for the answer. You can listen in different ways, pragmatically, intuitively. Look around, see whether those plants have enough to share. And if the answer is no, you go home. For we remember that they don't belong to us. And taking without permission is also known as stealing. And what if the precepts of the honorable harvest was the law of the land? What would the world look like if a developer poised to convert a meadow into a shopping mall had to ask the permission first of the goldenrod and the meadowlarks and had to abide by the answer? For Robin Kimmerer, the first value is gratitude. Every breath that you take is a breath that was made for you by plants. Um, the water that you drink, whether you're in an urban setting, whether you're on a remote mountaintop, we still are recipients of those gifts. And if we take the time to be grateful, that brings us into that state of humility, of understanding that we are not at the top of a biological hierarchy, that in fact we are the younger brothers of creation. And that humility and understanding that we have responsibilities in return for all the gifts that the rest of the world gives us is, I think, hopeful. Gratitude can be medicine for the earth. Science meets values in ecological parables of gratitude. Monica Gagliano. I see people lightens up, literally, when they receive the stories of what the plants actually do. And I think that the common ground there is awe. It's like, <gasps> and now you're connected with the child. The child, know, the child inside you knows what nature is, what it means to be here, what it means to be here with everyone else, all the other persons. And so maybe we just need to stop telling the story that we don't want anymore and start telling loud and more the stories of awe and joy that then bring this inevitable sense of like, wow. And you are grateful because you can't be anything else. And you want to love this place because you have no choice, because you are it, you know? To love this place because you are it. So what else might plant intelligence tell us about identity and consciousness itself? 
if I think about either intelligence or consciousness, by which I really mean a self-awareness and set of relationships, is that we find it vested in individuals, but my suspicion is that it is a distributed intelligence, a distributed consciousness, because we know that there is almost no such thing as an individual in nature. That If you think about a forest, the way all of those plants are connected to each other by roots, by all the senses that you are investigating, then they're connected by the fungal networks and the insect songs. I think that if we have consciousness, it is a shared consciousness in which all of those beings are effectively neurons. But I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What does land mean? A worldview in which land was understood as sacred as our sustainer, our pharmacy, our identity, our home, our library, the place where we play out our moral responsibility in return for our very lives, peopled with our non-human relatives. This is a way of being in which the tar sands are unthinkable. This is the same question that has us teetering on the precipice of unparalleled extinction and climate chaos. Is the land a source of belongings or a source of belonging? Scientist and traditionalist alike, Monica Gagliano and Robin Kimmerer show that if plants are teaching us anything, it's about the need for a value change for our own survival. Wouldn't that be the intelligent thing to do for everyone? Nature's Intelligence, Interviewing the Vegetable Mind. You can see and hear more from Robin Kimmerer or explore more Bioneers radio shows and video programming online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call one 877 The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Station relations, Anna Iglesias. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Rykodisc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at soundstrue.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0215.